0: and the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will raise first, after that we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with him, we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This is God's word. You may be seated. Thank you. inside of your uh, your announcement sheet, inside of your bulletin, there is an outline that you can use as we go through this message this morning. And there might be something that, that touches your heart. I always believe that when we uh, preach God's Word, that God is going to speak to us. And there might be something that you want to jot down, something you want to maybe follow up on or, or think about or meditate on later this week. And so I would encourage you to get that announcement sheet out and to follow along as we go through this study as we we, uh, we look at this text that was just read to us from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning verse 13. Before we do that, let's ask God to bless us Himself by going to Him in prayer. Father, when we think of, of all the things that we face in this life, uh, death is that great enemy and that, uh, that great leveler of all human beings. And there's not uh, anyone here this morning, Father, before you that at some point, having come to a certain age in this life, not been introduced some way into the reality of a fallen world, that death is a reality, or has had to to face it in a very personal way, either themselves through their own experience or, or through the experience of a loved one. And so as we gather on this first day of the week, Father, to encourage one another, we're asking you through your word to encourage us in order to, to have this hope, this, this golden hope, this, this, this tremendously dense and real hope, Father, that is not only true but inevitable to be at the forefront of our thinking, Father, in all that we do in the coming days, that it encourage us and that this information that you have blessed us with, Father, that it bless other people. And this is what we pray for, Father, to have those ears that hear and the eyes that see. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. I want to begin with a, a truth that's going to be up here on the screen. And that truth is this. Never underestimate the power of the future in your present. Never underestimate the power of the future in your present. The truth and the reality of what's down the road, when we think about it and it goes all the way down on the inside of us and becomes something that resonates in our soul, something that we hold on to, something that we base and found our life on, it has an absolute effect on the way that we live our life in the present, and that is never more true when we think about death, whether it's, it's, it's something personally that we're facing or we're facing it with somebody that we, we, we love with all of our, our heart. This last week I was uh, I was watching a movie, I, I think the movie was Robin Hood, the Russell Crowe version, and uh, you know, it's one of those movies, you've seen it so many times that you kind of know the segments of the movie. and. I said, you know, it, it, it's getting kind of late. Uh, I probably should get to bed, but I really like this segment of the movie, so I was going to stay up and watch it. And after a while, uh, it was only about a 15-minute segment there, I, I began to notice that all of the commercials at that time had to do with skincare products that had been designed scientifically to fight back the effects of aging. And the people that were promoting the products were absolutely beautiful people. Uh, Jane Seymour was one of them. And all of them said that you know they got to a place in their life where they just felt like they wanted to look young again. They just wanted to look youthful again. And I have absolutely no problem with that. I mean, I, there's nothing wrong with, with wanting to look good and wanting to look young. But I think it's that something else that was behind the ad that, that was troubling me a little bit. We live in a world where everything from from shamrocks, to people, to Redwood's age, and eventually break down. I heard a preacher say this this last week. Um, he said, whether you want to believe it or not, there's a lot of death in your future. Now, if the ultimate breakdown, death, is our future, then from one standpoint, it certainly makes sense that the effect that it's going to have in our life is, is that you know we're going to change things in the present. And one of the ways that we try to change things in the present is to try to put away those outward physical signs that we see every time we look in the mirror that we are aging and moving closer and closer and closer to that inevitable event. So we try to look youthful and we try to look young. It's sort of this denial thing. And, and ag- again, that's, that's one of the ways that, you know, fighting back the signs of breaking down, that denial, that's one of the ways that we deal with this reality. An- another approach to death is what we might call the cycle of life. Uh, many of you have read the book by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who's up here on the screen. She's Swedish. Uh, in fact, the very first time that she came to speak, she was a very famous uh, sociologist- was the expert in her lifetime on death and dying. In fact, wrote the the book On Death and Dying that, that was a bestseller for a lot of years. The very first place that she ever spoke in the United States and lectured on this subject was right here in San Antonio at Trinity University. But her idea of what death was, was this, this cycle of life. That, and she used the words, uh, death is like getting into a cocoon and coming out of it as a butterfly. It's a transformation, but the transformation as she described it is, you become a part of this greater awareness. So you have the cycle of life, you have denial. I, there's, there's a third one, and the third one we'll call it the Stoic advance. Many of you know the uh, the book, Lonesome Dove. Uh, if you've never read the book, you've, you've seen the miniseries. You know that there's this really horrific part in the book and in the miniseries where uh, the, the gang out of the Hat Creek Cattle Company have taken the cattle and they're starting to move it up to Montana and as they are getting ready to cross a river, uh, there is at the very end of the crossing, all of the cattle, all of the cowboys except the last two, They get into the water, and one of the boys falls off of his horse, and he is attacked. He he gets into a water moccasin swarm. Now, uh, you know, I've I've, I've lived around snakes all of my life, and, you know, everybody thinks rattlesnakes are the bad ones. Man, rattlesnakes, for me, are like number four or five. Water moccasins are right up there at the top because they can bite you underwater. I mean, who wants that? But it's this horrific scene, and it's scary, and and some of the cowboys cry knowing that it could have been them. And so as they, they bury Sean O'Brien under the tree and they get ready to move on, they, they, who's going to say something? And Gus steps forward and basically says, life is tough and if you're not careful, all of this is going to happen to you. And he gets on his horse, he says, I'm going to Montana. And his sidekick says, he's right. When it comes to death, you just got to ride on. Is that true? That when it comes That when it comes to this reality in life, that the best thing to do is is to ride on? I would offer that there's, there's another way. There's a Christian way in which we view this future, and it's this. Death is not to be feared because death has been defeated. Death is not to be feared because death has been defeated. Verse 13 of that passage that Joshua just read for us, brothers and sisters who... We do not want you to be uninformed. Circle that word in your Bible about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no what? Say it together. Hope. Who have no hope. As disciples of, of Jesus, Paul is saying that one of the important parts of living this life as a disciple of Jesus of Nazareth is that we need to be informed about death. Why? Why? Because there's a lot of death in our future. Sounds morbid, I know. I would rather be preaching on just about anything else this morning except this. It sounds morbid, but Paul says, if you read carefully, that when you know more about death from a Christian standpoint, it produces hope in your heart. It produces hope. And at some point in this life, you're going to need to know what to say to somebody who is beginning to face their own mortality in this life. Or at some point, you're going to need to know how to answer those questions for yourself as you go into the doctor's office or you get that phone call and it's either you or it's somebody that you love very deeply that's having to face it themselves. And so what I want to do this morning, um, I I just want to accomplish two things. The first is, I want us to have, maybe at a 5,000-foot level, I want us to understand biblical view of death. And then number two, how we live with that hope that the Bible gives us in a broken world. The world is thus, thus have we made it. Now, when sin entered the world, as you know, that's when the world became this broken place. Genesis 1 and and 2 is great creation. Genesis chapter 3, the fall of humanity. We decide we want to be our own masters. We're We're not going to trust God. And one of the primary summary statements in the New Testament about what's happening in Genesis chapter 3 is Romans 5 and verse 12. Just as sin entered the world through one man, there it is, he's talking about Genesis 3 right there, and death through the sin, And in this way, death came to all people because all have sinned. Now again, reading that very carefully and and sensitively, one of the things that it tells us is that death is not native to creation. Death is an abnormality. Death is not a part of the original design. Human beings, you and me, peoples, we were created to live forever. Forever. And so what happens at death? Again, you know, the 5,000-foot view. When you die, you don't disappear. You you just don't cease to exist, uh, annihilated in other words. What happens is you go to a place of the dead called Sheol or Hades. Uh, Sheol and Hades, I believe, are the same place. You find them uh, both being used as as uh, interchangeable words in the Hebrew and in the Greek. Psalm 30 and verse 3 says, O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You have kept me alive that I would not go down to the pit. Sheol is that place where the dead go after they have left this life. Now in this place, that is life after death, a person, biblically speaking, would go either to a place called Tartarus or a place called Paradise. Paradise. Tartarus is the place of the unrighteous. In 2 Peter chapter two and verse four, uh, what we have in our, our our English translations as that that word being translated as hell is is actually this word Tartarus in in the Greek language, and it's the place where the disobedient angels were located when when God, in His disapproval and their sinfulness and rebellion against Him, He placed them after that that fact. In Luke chapter sixteen, it is that place. That is described in the in, in the parable of the rich man and and Lazarus. Uh, this is where the rich man goes. It is it is a place for the unrighteous. He's not there because he's rich. He's he's there because he's unrighteous. He has opportunities to take care of Lazarus and to sp- spread the blessings, but he doesn't do it. In fact, you know he treats Lazarus as as sort of um, uh, a, a discardable human being, and that's his unrighteousness. And he's in this place of torment. Paradise is the place for the righteous. In Luke chapter 16, this is the place where the the, the, the poor man goes. It, it's called there the bosom of Abraham. Uh, it's also called paradise. Uh, now, paradise is is, is, a, is a, a, a tremendous word. I mean, when we hear the word paradise, we all get these images of places where we grew up that we thought was absolutely beautiful. It's usually uh, a, a place out in nature, out in the country someplace, and we just think of this pristine primeval place that's just beautiful to us. We're not in man's architecture. We're out in God's architecture. And that really is what this word really touches on. It's a Persian word. And it was a word that was co-opted by, by lots of people to describe beautiful things. But it started as a, as a word that described the great gardens and exotic animals that filled these gardens of, of, of the Persian kings. And it, it's a place that conjures up beauty It's a place that conjures up peace. And you'll remember that uh, on the cross in Luke chapter 23, as Jesus is about to die, what is it that he says to that thief? Today you will be with me in, where? In paradise. Paradise is the place in life after death where those whose faith and trust were foremost and preeminent in God. That is the place that they go. And, and I want you to see something really interesting about paradise in Scripture. After the resurrection, now Jesus has said, you will be with me where? In paradise, right? Notice that when Jesus is seen by Mary, he tells her not to touch him because he has not ascended where? To the Father. You will be with me in paradise, but don't touch me later on after the resurrection because i've not ascended into the presence of god i've not ascended to my father now notice this it's up here on the screen 2 Corinthians chapter 12 verses 1 through 4 paul says and he's he's writing about the end of life he says i, I must he, well he's not he's talking about his experience of heaven he says i must go on boasting although there's nothing to be gained i will go on to visions and revelations from the lord I know a man, I believe he's talking about himself. He says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third, what? Heaven. He was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows, and I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise. All of a sudden in this passage, you have both heaven and paradise coming together now one of the things that i think is absolutely accurate and one of the things i think absolutely needs to be said when we are talking about the death of the righteous and the death of the disciples of jesus and and the death of the faithful is that the righteous and faithful dead in paradise have come into the presence of god not always was that the case The reason, I believe, is because until Jesus ascended into heaven and made atonement for sin, the dead in Christ were not able to come into His presence. But after that atonement that Christ made, after His resurrection and ascended into heaven, because that atonement had been made, that separation between paradise and the heaven where God is at no longer exists. That when our brothers and sisters die in Christ... They go to a place in which they are in the presence of God. And I think that this is what Paul is trying to get at when he says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 8, when he ascended on high, after talking about having descended to the depths, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives into the presence of God. And so, in the future, there's going to be another component of this. It's going to be the second coming of Christ. There is found in our passage in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Robert, if I can get you to advance to the next slide. Next slide. There we go. Next slide. There we go. We have the second coming of Christ. And this, again, is found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And the Lord's coming in this passage sounds like a victory parade. And when we think about victory parades, we've had a few of them here in San Antonio with the Spurs. Don't think of a victory parade like that where we're standing on the banks of the the river walk and here come the Spurs, here comes, you know, Manu, here comes Tim, here comes Tony, here comes, you know, here comes the, the Spurs, the victorious Spurs, the NBA champion Spurs, you know, floating down the river, and we're standing on the side cheering them on. This is not the way the parades, victory parades, were held in the ancient world. And everyone in Thessalonica that read first Thessalonians chapter four would have recognized what's going on here. What is being described is here is this king who is coming back from battle. And after this battle that he has won, there's this, this this great victory has been won over a great victory of the king's people. And king is coming back and he's, he's coming back with his entourage as the people would hear from the city that the king is coming back. What they would do is they would go and they would meet him and then they would join into the entourage and they would come back into the city and there would be this great festival and, and, and great celebration. But... The point was that the people who went out to meet him came into that town with him, celebrating not only the victory, but celebrating their part in it. Celebrating the fact that they were a part of the victory. And this is what Paul is trying to get the people in Thessalonica to realize. Is that when Jesus comes again, we're going to be caught up with him in the air as he comes back to earth, and we are going to be celebrating in that victory over sin and that victory over death and that victory over every, every bad thing that ever happened in this life and every bad event. Celebrating God's ultimate victory over evil in that event. But at the second coming, there's going to be then the judgment. And at judgment, it's going to come down to whether or not you believed in and trusted in Christ. That you came to a point where you realize that you may be a really, really good person in the eyes of a lot of people in your community, in, even in your family, your places at work. You recognize that even though you do X number of really good things and you're pretty generous with your money, that you still you're still guilty of that sin that is the result of the fall, that in our fallenness we all sin, responsible for our own individual sin. And because of that, there is no way that we can escape the judgment. At judgment, it will boil down to whether or not you're in Christ and Christ is in you. What it boils down to, what is important, is whether or not you know Christ and Christ knows you. And then the people of faith in Christ will be a part of a great, great, great resurrection. And this is why Paul can write in verse 13, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. Paul does not say that grieving is a bad thing. Paul does not say that that grieving is a sin. Grief is the normal response of a human being to the tragic experiences that we all have of a broken world. Grief is is personal and grief is relational. Grief is not about where they are. Grief is about where they're not. But the difference in the grief of a disciple of Jesus is that it is a grief that is laced with hope. It is a grieving of the pain in the present that things are not the way that they are supposed to be but a grief that is saturated in the knowledge that God will put the world back together again, the way it looked in Genesis 1 and 2. I like this quote from uh, N.T. Wright. He says, Easter, talking about the resurrection, was when hope in the person of Christ surprised the whole world by coming forward from the future into the present. You know, it's really important that we We study the resurrection of Christ, that we know about the resurrection of Christ, that we we understand and and grow in our understanding of what that resurrection is like because when we see the resurrected Christ, what we see is our future. And that is how Christ becomes my hope donor. I don't have any hope without Jesus. I don't have any hope in this world without the Christ. I have no hope and neither do you except that Christ infuses us with it. He is the first fruit and you know what the first fruit was in the old testament it was it was, you know, when the, the harvest came, that first fruit was the, the first of the harvest and it was always dedicated to God because it was a way of honoring God and recognizing God as God, the provider of all of this food. But inherent in all of that was trusting God that if I was to give you the first, there would there was always the promise that there was more that would follow. And that's what it means for Christ to be the first fruit of the resurrection. He is the first with many, many more that are going to come. Romans chapter 6, verse 4, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may, what? Live a new life. The next couple of minutes, very, very quickly, two practical ways to live in this life knowing that's our future. The first is believe what Christ believed. Simple, right? Believe what Christ believed. Jesus talked about the resurrection and the future a lot. In John chapter 14, he says what? He says, I go to prepare a place for you. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. I will come back for you, and you will be with me forever. In John chapter 11, Lazarus dies, and Jesus brings him back to life. But while he's grieving, which is kind of a a very interesting thing because he knows he's going to raise Lazarus to life again, but he grieves. That's, That's how we grieve. We grieve in the hope of the life to come. Or the life returning. But he says in John chapter 11, verse 25, I am the resurrection and I am the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. He says this to Martha, but he says it to us. Do you believe this? This is what Jesus said to a woman confronting in the most existential way, death. And again, it's here that we see grief in in Jesus. He weeps, even in the knowledge that He will raise Lazarus from the dead. Jesus loves Lazarus. Lazarus is His friend, and He weeps over the brokenness and the ultimate breakdown in His friend because of what happened to all humans who are made in the image of God when sin entered into the world, the ultimate breakdown. So, brothers and sisters, believe what Jesus believed. John 14, verse 19, because I live, you also will live. Say it with me. Because I live, you also will live. Last thing, anticipate a life beyond imagination. When the fall came in Genesis chapter 3, everything changed. We, we talk about this a lot. We, we age, we grow feeble, we grow weaker and weaker and weaker until we die. Paul describes the world in Romans 8 as in being in bondage to decay. In in God's heaven, all of that is gone. In God's heaven, all of that is gone. Instead of growing weaker and weaker, we grow stronger and stronger and stronger. And we always become, in God's heaven, that person we were always supposed to be. And 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 one of the things that um, that the Bible describes for us is that we we are destined for beauty. The reason the word paradise is used, we're, we are destined for beauty. Revelation describes heaven as a place where the streets are golden. Uh, a, a week ago at David Layman's funeral in Brackettville, he was such a fan of of, of the Texas Longhorns that that one of the, the people that knew him and knew his affinity for the Longhorns said, you know, for David, the the street is going to be golden and burn orange. <laughs> and pearly gates, you know, you remember the the all of the all of the metaphor and that's what it is. I don't think that's literal. I think it's a metaphor. It's it, it's a metaphor for a place so beautiful that your eyes water. You ever seen a sky so blue that it just makes your eyes kind of well up a little bit? Heaven is a place so beautiful that you never get tired of looking at it. It's it's a beauty that we can't even imagine. And and it's and it will be a banquet. One of the in fact, the number one metaphor that that Jesus uses to describe the place where God is is a banquet. Most used metaphor. You know, in the ancient world the ancient world was a place where you couldn't always count on food you you know if there's a famine or there's there's a drought i mean you just can't just drop down to the heb and, and pick up what you need you were going to suffer and if there was a famine i mean you just couldn't pop over to the heb you couldn't pick up some tomatoes imported from another country it was a time of suffering and that's why these wedding banquets were so anticipated they weren't just a couple of hours they went for a week and for people who a lot of times didn't have adequate food or even very good food, and, and for people who didn't have, you know, wine to drink, these, these banquets were the, were the best part of the year. The best part of the year. Because during that week, you would get to eat like a king. You would get to eat like a king. And not only would you eat like a king, but you would eat like a king with all of your your family and all of your friends and all of your community of of people. And it would be the finest of foods and the finest of wines. And it's not just a metaphor that Jesus uses. Isaiah has his grand vision of what it's going to look like in the end. And Isaiah says on this mountain, The Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, the finest of wines. On this mountain, He will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples. The sheet that covers all nations, He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove His people's disgrace, from all the earth, the Lord has spoken. So a, a preacher died uh, back in the 1990s, famous preacher here in the United States. You might have some of his books, Donald Gray Barnhouse. Uh, Barnhouse. What you might not know about this man, who preached for decades in Philadelphia, is that uh, while his children were very small, his first wife died. And they had gone to the funeral, and as they were driving home his kids as you can imagine little kids were just distraught that their mom was never going to be around again at least in this life and as they're sitting in the back of the car going back to their home they're at a stop sign and this gigantic moving van goes right in front of them and uh, as it goes by the shadow of the van rolls right over the top of that car the shadow of it and that's where he had an epiphany And he turned to these little kids that he had his arms around. And he said, kids, would you rather be run over by a truck or by its shadow? And his little daughter pipes up and says, Dad, that's an easy one. I'd rather be run over by the shadow because it can't hurt us at all. And Dr. Barnhouse said, 2000 years ago the truck of death ran over the Lord Jesus in order that only its shadow might run over us and i think of those words in psalm 23 where david says even though i walk Say it with me. I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I fear no evil, for you are with me. There's so much more to say, but what I want is for you to have hope. I want you to have the real hope that, you, that, that sustains you in this life, that, 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 that doesn't take, take away the mystery of death, but helps us to understand the reality of the resurrection and the love of God and the mercy of God and the forgiveness of God that takes away our sin in order for us to be in His heaven, in His presence for all of eternity. Ben, come lead us in a song. Time is filled with swift transition. to uh, have Alyssa smithson to stand Alyssa, can we get you to stand and be recognized where are you right here can we get you to stand a little bit longer so everybody can see you new member of our church family (laughs) we'll have a picture of her real quick that you can see in the directory and up here on the screen we're going to get you (laughs) Uh, several prayer requests have come forward this from david youngblood for uh, his sister brenda dickerson she is home now, still receiving some chemo treatments. We want to continue prayer there. Uh, Bell Watson for Shera Hester-McClellan. Thank you for your continued prayers for my friend of 40 years. Shera uh, has stage 4 cancer in her abdominal lymph nodes and stage 1 cancer in her pancreas and intestines. She is undergoing treatments and doing well. Side effects have been minimal. Thank you for your prayers. They have helped. Calista Lairla for Chris Al- uh, Alcozer. He is continuing to struggle with depression. Please pray for him to have a better week. Adrian Heiston for Charles Terry, a friend and former supervisor. Charles' friend Sam Payne and her mother uh, were violently assaulted by a group of people and robbed um, Sam of her purse, car, and apartment. Both ladies were admitted to the hospital. Charles is praying that he'd respond in a Christian manner. Jerry Krisner is asking us to pray for him as well as for his job. He says, I'm going to start working at USAA on a cleaning crew. I need to keep this, so I need your prayers. Also, my brother Kenneth Krisner is in need of prayers.